Let's open our Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 33. Isaiah chapter 33. On Wednesdays and Sunday nights, we've thus far studied from the book of Genesis, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. That is, this last session. We've been through it uh, more times than one in these 39 years. But on the other hand, we're through it again on Sunday nights and Wednesday nights. Isaiah chapter 33 And let me mention that chapter 32, we had a king will reign. Chapter 33 that we're studying, Jerusalem will be be delivered. And uh, chapter 34, the sinful world will be judged. And chapter 35, the glorious kingdom will be established. So you have four things, and that will end the section of the book of Isaiah, up to a, a particular division of the book of Isaiah. So you want to get those again? Uh, chapter 32 it says, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness. So a, a king will reign. Chapter 33, which we're on tonight, Jerusalem will be delivered. Chapter 34, the sinful world will be judged. That's one of the darkest chapters of the Bible is Isaiah chapter 34. And when we get there, you'll understand. And then... Chapter 35 is a wonderful chapter. The glorious kingdom will be established. So we'll get into chapter 33 tonight and try to uh, look at a great deal that we'll find here. So let's look at uh, the first verse. By the way, let me give you a division of this chapter as well. In this chapter, we have the judgment announced in verse 1. Judgment announced. And then verses 2 through 6, the prayer of the faithful remnant. And then verses 7 through 13, the judgment executed. Verses 14 through 16, the judge in the midst of Zion. Verses 17 through 23, the king beheld in his beauty. And verse 24, healing and forgiveness, the result of the coming of the king. So this would uh, serve as a good division for the book, or for the chapter, I should say. Look at chapter 33, verse 1. Woe to thee that spoilest, and that and thou wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled. And when thou shalt make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with thee. This sixth woe, woe to thee that spoilest, is against the Assyrian... And what is to follow in judgment? Now then, uh, the Assyrian, of course, was the one that was against uh, Israel and that was uh, really taking advantage and persecuting God's people. And this sixth and final woe in this section and in other sections that we've had before in the book of Isaiah is directed against Sennacherib because he of his treachery against Judah. And in unbelief, King Hezekiah tried to buy off the Assyrian. You know, King Hezekiah, on the one hand of Israel, and then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. And so Hezekiah thinks that he can buy him off and get out of the situation. And you find the record of it in Second Kings. Let's see, Second Kings chapter 18. Verses 13 through 15. Let me just read this little section. Second Kings 18, verse 13 through 15. 
Now in the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah did Sennacherib, king of Assyria, come up against all the fenced cities of Judah and took them. And Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent to the king of Assyria to Lachish, saying, I have offended. In other words, here's the king of Judah apologizing to this king of Assyria. You know, we know we owe no apologies to the world. But he's saying, I have offended. Return from me. That which thou puttest on me will I bear. In other words, you just tell me and I'll bear whatever you say. And the king of Assyria appointed unto Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. He thought, well, we'll make a covenant, a compromise here. And Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in, in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house. And you go on and read the whole section there. So King Hezekiah made a great mistake. He tried to buy them off. But Sennacherib had broken the agreement and invaded Judah anyway. It didn't make any difference to him. He was a thief. He was a traitor. He was a tyrant. And God promised to judge him. He had destroyed others and he would be destroyed. He had dealt treacherously with nations and so they would deal treacherously with him. You know, God is not mocked. The Bible says, Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And if you read that first verse again, you'll notice it says, Woe to thee that spoilest, and thou wast not spoiled, and dealest treacherously, and they shall, and they dealt not treacherously with thee. When thou shalt cease to spoil, thou shalt be spoiled. See, he's spoiled, and he's going to be spoiled. And it says, And when thou shalt make an end to deal treacherously, they shall deal treacherously with thee. You don't get by with anything with the Lord. And whatever a man soweth, the Bible says God is not mocked. Sinners reap what they have sown. In Isaiah 33, verse 2, begins the prayer of this godly remnant. It says, O Lord, be gracious unto us. Be gracious unto us. God is always gracious. And we do not gracious means we do not deserve Him being good to us as He is good to us. And we ask it anyway. Grace is God's unmerited favor. We don't deserve, right? So he says, O God, O Lord, be gracious unto us. This is the prayer of the faithful remnant within the nation and the people. There are some that turn to God. When Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrian army, well, naturally they're going to pray. You know, sometimes we're in a great strait or we're in a terrible situation. Well, then's, then's the time that we think about praying. Sometimes we forget to pray when things are going well. But when the enemies all surrounded us, when everything is caving in, the world and the flesh and the devil and trials and tribulations and problems and, and disturbances, then we, we really pray. We say prayers a lot of times. And we pray. But when we really pray is when we're in trouble. We're talking about praying from the heart and praying deep down in our souls. And sometimes it takes that to, to really help us to pray as we are. He says, O Lord, be gracious unto us. We have waited for Thee. We have waited for thee. The Bible says, They that wait upon the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. It says, Be thou their arm every morning. Every morning we need an arm, a strong arm. The arm speaks of his power. Every morning. If we miss one morning, we've missed it all. Someone says, Well, I'll wait till tomorrow. Every day, every morning that we, we're without God's strength or arm, we're in trouble. doesn't make any difference with Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday or Sunday. 
It's every day of the week. We need His arm of strength to help us. Every morning, our salvation also in the time of trouble. In the time of trouble. The Bible says, I will call upon thee in the day of trouble, in the time of trouble, and thou shalt hear, thou shalt answer me. And uh, we go on and see in verse 3, it says, At the noise of the tumult, the people fled. Now these people were praying, weren't they? At, at the lifting up of thyself, the nations were scattered. The voice of God is often uh, described as a thunderstorm. If you look back in 29 verse 6, just turn back a few pages in your Bible. It says, Thou shalt be visited of the Lord of hosts with thunder and with earthquake and with and great noise, with storm and tempest and the flame of devouring fire. All of these are significant of God's judgment. And this is how the Assyrians would be destroyed. Thou shalt be visited, what? That's 29 verse 6. Of the Lord of hosts with thunder with, and with earthquake and great noise, with a storm, with storm and tempest and the flaming, the flame of devouring fire. So back in 33 verse 3, at the noise of the tumult or the thunder, the thunderstorm or whatever was involved in this tumult, the people fled. At the lifting up of thyself, the nations were scattered. And your spoil shall be gathered like the gathering of the caterpillar as the running to and fro of locusts shall he run upon them. When the Assyrians flee away, they will leave all their possessions behind them. They were trying to spoil the uh, Judah and Israel, but they would leave all their possessions behind them. It says in verse uh, 5, The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. Well, see, in the midst of all this destruction of, of the Assyrian... We might say that the prayer of this godly remnant when uh, Jerusalem was surrounded by a Syrian army and Isaiah had promised that God would be gracious to them if they would only trust Him. He promised that in chapter 30, verses 18 and 19. So a few of the devout people turned this promise of Isaiah and promise of God into a prayer. And God spared Jerusalem for David's sake. We've already referred to that earlier uh, as we uh, spoke of a similar situation. But in chapter 37, verse uh, 35, we see where God did, despair, did spare Jerusalem for David's sake. Look in 37 for a reference again. This is a wonderful reference concerning the Assyrian and Sennacherib. Look in 37, verse 35. God says, For I will defend this city to save it, for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. See, God says, I'm going to defend it, not only for my own sake, but for my own sake. And then he says, for my servant David's sake. God had made a promise to David. And then it says, Then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote in the camp of the Assyrians a hundred and four score and five thousand, a hundred and eighty-five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. For David's sake. I like that. My servant David's sake. You know the reason God does anything for us? For Jesus' sake. That's the reason that He spares us. That's the reason He helps us. That's the reason He delivers us. That's the reason He forgives us. That's the reason He's with us. It says, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is Christ that died. God that justifies so if he doesn't have anything against us, 
then who else can? <clears throat> and so God spared Jerusalem for David's sake, and because a believing remnant trusted God and prayed. And if we have a few in the church that will trust God and pray, and never underestimate the power of a praying minority. If you just have a few that will pray. There was a minority that prayed and God brought the deliverance. Assyria was proud of her power and the spoils she had gathered in battle. And the Assyrian army swept through the land like devouring locusts. But that would change. The day would come when Judah would strip the dead Assyrian army and Sennacherib would be assassinated in the temple of the God that he claimed was stronger than Jehovah. And that happened too. The Lord was exalted in the defeat of Assyria. Look at verse 5. You have a place, hold your place where we're studying. Isaiah chapter 33. Look at verse 5. The Lord, it says, is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. Look at that. The Lord was exalted in the defeat of the Assyrian. There is no human power that could have done what he did. And we must remember that nations and individuals can have stability in uncertain times only when they trust in God and seek his wisdom and his glory and his guidance. Now, King Hezekiah had done a foolish thing when he took the temple treasures and tried to bribe Sennacherib. That was a foolish thing. And when you and I, a lot of times we do such a foolish thing. We think that, well, we can look to the world, we can look to man, we can look to high-ups, leaders, rulers, and we can favor them. And in this sense, he bribed, tried to bribe him. But even if you don't go that far and they're looking to the world for help, remember chapter 31 says, Woe to them that go down to Egypt for help. Well, woe to them also that go to the Assyrian king for help. And see, one is just as bad as the other. In fact, the Assyrian king gets on to, to Judah for looking to Egypt for help. They say, why don't you look to me for help? So that there will be one power wrestling against the other for you to look to them for your deliverance. But where should we be looking? Huh? We should be looking to the Lord instead of either one of them. Hezekiah certainly was not go down to Egypt for help because... It says that those that uh, trust in horses stay on, stay on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they look not unto the Holy One of Israel, neither seek the Lord. That's 31 verse 1. That's a good verse. You need to mark it. So anyway, that's looking in the wrong direction. But also to try to bribe the king of Assyria was the wrong thing to do. <clears throat> but in spite of this fact, God forgave him and reminded him that the fear of the Lord is your only treasure. Look at the verses 5 and 6 as we read them. The Lord is exalted, for he dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. Now look at verse 6. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. And strength of salvation, the fear of the Lord is his treasure. Who's his treasure? The fear of the Lord is your treasure. Unbelief looks to human resources for help, but faith looks to God for help. And during the time of the Assyrian invasion, the situation of Judah was very grim. And Judah's bravest soldiers wept, and they saw one city after another fall to the enemy. The official Jewish envoys wept because their negotiations accomplished absolutely nothing. 
when you try to negotiate to negotiate with with those that are ungodly and those that are in power and those that would abuse their power to to oppress you, then you're negotiating with the wrong person. We need to be praying to God for deliverance from such situations. During the time of this invasion, this situation was very grim and there was no way. The roads were dangerous, the fields and orchards were ruined, and there was no way of escape except for one thing, that God would arise. And we'll find that later on in our message. Let's look at this situation that they faced, first of all. Verse uh, 5 and 6. Let's look at 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted, for He dwelleth on high. He hath filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. In other words, He's the one that fills Zion with judgment and righteousness. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times. By the way, wisdom and righteousness is the stability of your time. And it certainly shall be in the future uh, for all of us. And the strength of salvation, the fear of the Lord is His treasure. These God-given qualities were far greater treasure than the spoil that was left behind. Some people are looking for the earthly spoil. I'd rather have the, the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and the strength of salvation and the fear of the Lord is His treasure. Behold, their valiant ones shall cry, shall cry without. The ambassadors of peace shall weep bitterly. The scene quickly shifts back to the situation of despair. The highways lie waste. The wayfaring man ceaseth. He hath broken the covenant. The sin of Cherith broke the covenant with Hezekiah. He hath despised the cities. He regardeth no man. It's a sad situation, isn't it? You heard the news just this afternoon. Today, another bomb attack on uh, in Jerusalem, in Israel. And I think there was 14 killed, over 100 and something wounded. And this is, they gave the number, and I forget it right offhand, but like 30 or 40 attacks since they said that there was going to be a peace over there. There's not going to be until Jesus comes. And they're going to go ahead and fight, fume, fuss, bomb, and one blame the other. But the Bible predicts what's going to happen. And you know, it would be good if they could learn to get along. But you know, as long as you have men upon this earth, there's going to be wars until Jesus comes. Because the Bible says that from whence cometh wars among you, James says, and fightings among you. Come they not even from your own members, your own lust that war in your members? And that's true on a small scale. On an individual basis, it is true on a larger scale, and it's true on the national and international scale. When you have people fighting and envying and lusting and wanting more power and wanting more possessions and wanting more of everything and wanting to do the other fellow in and no consideration for the next guy, that's what's going to happen. In verse uh, 9 it says, The earth mourneth and languisheth. Lebanon is ashamed and hewn down. Lebanon were the choicest trees. Remember the, the cedars of Lebanon are spoken of and they're lofty cedars. And uh, it was speaking of the, the loftiness of that place. And then it says, Sharon is like a wilderness, the level place or the coastal plain. Extremely fertile. Sharon is like, it had become like a wilderness. 
Then it says in Bashan, here's a fertile uh, region east of the Jordan River, Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. So the earth mourneth and languisheth, as it says in the beginning of that verse. Now then, remember we said there was no way of escape for Judah except of the Lord. In verse 10 says, Now will I rise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. And so their only escape was for God to rise, and He would rise. And He would be exalted, and He would lift up Himself. Now Isaiah uses several images to describe God's judgment upon the Assyrians in the next several verses. The account of this amazing deliverance was told far and wide how God would deliver His people. Now will I arise, saith the Lord. Now will I be exalted. Now will I lift up myself. In other words, God would soon act in their behalf. He says, You shall conceive chaff, you shall bring forth stubble. Your breath as fire shall devour you. God's destructive breath would bring judgment upon them. And the people shall be as the burnings of lime. As thorns cut up shall they be burned in the fire. A term for the wicked. In Second Samuel 23, verse 6, let me read a verse of Scripture for you. It says, But the sons of Belial shall be all of them as thorns thrust away, because they cannot be taken with hands. And what does it say here about thorns? It says, As thorns cut up shall they be burned in the fire. Thorns burn enough without having them cut up, don't they? But as thorns cut up into just fine kindling and tender, I mean just the crackling blow of the fire... And the breeze, and it's gone. That's how quick, and how sudden, and how complete would be the destruction. And God says, Hear ye that are far off what I have done, and ye that are near acknowledge my might. The sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness has surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with, with the devouring fire? Here's a picture of God's wrath and divine judgment. Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? You see, God is a God of love, but He's also a God of judgment, isn't He? The miracle of God's deliverance of Jerusalem not only brought glory to God among the Gentiles, but it also brought fear and conviction to the Jews. And God does not deliver us so that we're free to return to our sins. There's forgiveness that God may be feared. And when these Jews saw 185,000, we read it in chapter 37, verse 35, I believe it was, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers slain by the Lord in one night, the angel of the Lord, they realized anew that God of Israel was a consuming fire. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire. And in verse 15, look at verse 15. Isaiah describes the kind of person that God will accept and bless. Look at verse 15. He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly, he that despiseth the gain of oppressors, that shaketh his hands from holding bribes, just throws them away, he doesn't want to hold any bribes, that stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood, and shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. That's the man that eschews evil or shuns evil. The righteous are those who do not yield their members 
as members of unrighteousness unto sin. Paul puts it in Romans chapter 6 and verse 13. He says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. And that is the kind of a person that God will accept and bless. Are you that kind of a person? By ourselves, we cannot have these qualities and achieve these qualities. Look at them again in verse 15. You have your place there? He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly. He that despiseth the gain of oppressions. That shaketh his hands from holding of bribes. That stoppeth his ears from hearing of blood. And shutteth his eyes from seeing evil. He shall dwell on high. So we find that that's the kind of person that we should be. And we cannot achieve this except we come to trust Jesus and to grow in grace and in truth. There were many religious people in Jerusalem that had hearts that were far from God because their religion was on a matter of external ceremonies. Remember in 29.13, look in verse chapter 29 and verse 13 what God said about this. He says, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the precept of man. Therefore, behold, I will proceed to do a marvelous work among this people. In other words, it, it would take the grace of God to turn that around. But he says, They draw near to me with their mouth. Their heart is far from me. And there were many like that in Israel. Many religious people. And Isaiah had hoped that this miracle of deliverance of the city would bring these people to a place of true devotion to the Lord. When you see a miracle of God's grace happen in the church or in your life, what should this do to you? It should wake you up, shouldn't it? It should cause us to to bring true devotion to God for all that He has done. I've seen time and time again when things have happened to us in this church. And the Lord blesses us. And it it does wake us up. And it should wake us up. And it's only as we walk with the Lord that we have real security and satisfaction. Look at verse 16. It says, He that dwelleth on high, his place of defense shall be the munitions of rocks. God and His Spirit dwell on high. And he comes to the aid of the righteous. It says, bread shall be given him, his water shall be sure. In other words, there's security, isn't there? This is where it comes from, is from the Lord. It says, thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. Here's another section. Here begins another section from here to the end. The prophet lifts up his vision to the end of times and sees Jerusalem ruled by the king Messiah. And God's victory over Assyria is but just a picture or a dress rehearsal, you might say, for His victory over the whole Gentile world system that will one day assemble to destroy the holy city. And you read in Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 9, when this destruction is prophesied, it will take place. But when the Lord uh, comes, uh, He will put an end to all of the enemies, and He will establish Himself in righteousness. And then he will be seen. Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty, and they shall behold the land very far off. 
In contrast to the Assyrian siege, the Jews' uh, messianic kingdom will experience no terror and see no arrogant military officers and hear no foreign speech. Jerusalem will be, uh, as is described on down in a in verse thirty, verse twenty, rather. We'll find a description of what they'll be like. But let's begin to read on down. Verse 17 says, Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. You know, it says, The king. I'm amazed at the way Isaiah puts it so progressively. He says, The king. Then it says, Our king. Then it says, My king. The and our and my. The same way, you know, it says back in Exodus when it says, Thou shalt take a lamb. It says a lamb for the house. And you go on and you see the progression in speaking of that lamb. And then it says his lamb. And it comes down to a personal basis. Every man his lamb. In the same way you find that as far as Jesus is concerned. He is the Savior. He is our Savior. He is my Savior. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. If you want a verse of Scripture that shows you the... Uh, progressiveness, or you might say the steps of salvation. There's one that that I think of, and that is that it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, in whom, listen, in whom ye also trusted. After that you heard the word of truth. So if the trusting was after, then first you heard the word of truth, and then you trusted or believed, right. In whom also after that you believed or trusted, uh, it says the gospel of your salvation it became personal and then it says you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise so what's the order you heard the word of truth you trusted it you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise in doing that it became the gospel of your salvation and it says which is the earnest verse 14 the earnest the guarantee the promise the assurance which is the pledge which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of His glory. So, uh, if you want a verse of Scripture, someone says, well, there's so many steps in salvation, that puts it all in one, one big giant step, if you might say, or one step at a time. It's all there in one instant. Because you hear the Word, you believe the Word, it's the gospel of your salvation, and immediately the Holy Spirit seals you until the day of redemption. It all happens. It's not, it, it says after that you believe you were sealed, but the word after doesn't mean a long time after, a day after, an hour after, or any time lapse. It means upon believing you were sealed until the day of redemption. So God does work. And here we're talking about the... Uh, things that will happen in the future. In verse uh, 18 it says, Thine heart shall meditate terror. This was caused by the Assyrians. Thine heart shall meditate terror. Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counteth towers? Thou shalt not see a fierce people. Why? The Assyrians would not be allowed to enter Jerusalem. They would have not have to see them. A people of deep, deeper speech than thou canst perceive, of a stammering tongue that thou canst not understand, of obscure speech, actually. And it says, Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. They were to lift their voice or their eyes from looking upon the, the uh, fierce people. Verse 19 and verse 18 
meditating upon terror, and lift up their eyes and look upon Zion, the city of our sovereignties. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation. We know that this must be a picture of a future time when the Lord comes because there is no quiet habitation there now. We've already uh, referred to that, haven't we? And there has not been through the ages. And there will be, though. God says they're going, they'll look upon Jerusalem a quiet habitation. You know, all of our leaders, and they mean well. And they have these peace accords and people shaking hands and the television cameras uh, flashing and boy, what a wonderful day this is on the White House lawn and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then over there, they're bombing one another and killing one another. And I know you've got to try. The Bible says, blessed are the peacemakers. But on the other hand, the real prediction of the peace that will come will come after all of this, this sinful world goes through its... A process of fighting and fuming and fussing and killing one another. And then when the Lord comes in Revelation 19 back in power and great glory and He brings His people into the land of the millennium and into the land of promise for they will never be put out anymore, then will be that time of peace that we all look for and not until then. Look upon Zion, verse 20, the city of our psalmities. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation. Look, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. In contrast to the tabernacle, not like the tabernacle in the wilderness. The tabernacle in the wilderness was taken down every time God says, let's move. Remember when the pillar of fire and the cloud moved? Well, uh, for Israel to guide them. Well, every time that cloud lifted and began to move, they were to dismantle that tabernacle and they were to move. And then when they'd get to another place and the cloud would stay, they were to set it up again for worship. But it says, look at this now. It says, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down. Not one of the stakes, the stakes that held the cords, shall be re- ever be removed. Neither shall any of the cords thereof be broken. Well, it'll be there, won't it? God's dwelling place will be permanent. It will not be one that will be so transit like a tent or tabernacle that you'll dismantle. You'll not have to carry it anywhere. When the Lord sets up His kingdom and His uh, tabernacle of worship in the millennium, when He sets it up in the future in the eternal glory, it will be there and it will be stabilized and secure forever. Then it says in verse 21, but there, but there the glorious Lord will be unto us as a place of broad rivers and streams, wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ships pass thereby. God would be like a wide river surrounding the city. By the way, Jerusalem is one of those cities, great cities, that did not have a river surrounding them. But God is going to be like that river to them one of these days. Jerusalem is one of the few great cities of antiquity that was not built near a river. But that will change during the Millennial Kingdom. If you want a good reference, read all of Ezekiel 47. Of course, the river symbolizes the peace that the Lord gives unto His people. And He will surround that whole city with peace. If you turn to Revelation chapter 21, He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and out of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, uh, was there was there the tree of life, which 
bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded their fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So it says, He showed me a pure river of water of life. Back in Isaiah 33, quickly, we have two or three verses and we'll close. Quickly. In verse 30, uh, 21, But there the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams, wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. There will not be any ships on that uh, river or sea or that water that will come in to attack and to uh, try to destroy It says, for the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. What did we say? Back in verse 17, thine eyes shall see the king. Look at that, verse 17. What does it say here? Our king. For the Lord is our judge. Look, judge, lawgiver, and king. James says that there's one lawgiver. Let me read it for you. James chapter 4. Verse 12, There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? We should not judge one another because there is one lawgiver. By the way, when you start judging someone else, you just better look inside because you probably... Brother Nichols read a good poem there tonight, didn't he? About throwing the stone. Don't you have any weaknesses of your own? Don't you have any problems of your own? Well, don't cast any stones. If you live in a glass house, don't throw rocks. So, we need not do that. The Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. Boy, isn't this perfect? The perfect characteristics of the Messiah. We could go back in chapter 32, verse 1. Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. Verse 2 says, And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. We studied that in our last lesson. Now then, look. Verse 23 and 24, and we'll close. Thy tacklings are loose. They could not well strengthen their mass. They could not spread the sail. Then is the prey of a great spoil divided. The lame, the lame take the prey. Now verse 24. And the inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. Here, the spiritual sickness of sin is likely the meaning. But they will be forgiven and delivered. The inhabitants shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven their iniquity. That's a good place to close it. Thy sins are forgiven. The Bible says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all lives in me. Bless His holy name. What? Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. And he goes on to tell many other things that the Lord does. I believe that's Psalm 103. But anyway, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is with me. And he says, bless his holy name, who forgiveth. He starts out, who, who forgives our sins, who heals our diseases, who renews us in our strength, who sustains us day by day.